the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring one to you so you can follow along in our study tonight. Chapter 6, we're finally making some ground here. We're talking about the walk of the believer. The Apostle Paul has spent a great deal of time in this section of his letter to the Ephesians talking to us about what the Christian life looks like. Not as a cause of our pleasing God, but as an effect of what God has already done for us. What does the Christian life look like? He spent a lot of time telling us. Now he's talking to us of the place where it is demonstrated. Specifically, the relationships that we are a part of in this world. Our marriages, with our spouses, you know. With our families, with our parents, if we're children living at home. With our children, if we are parents. What does the Christian life look like? And with our bosses or our employees, depending upon our situation out in the world, the Apostle is talking to us about the place where the walk of the believer matters the most. Now, as we cross into chapter 6, he's going to begin talking to us about the relationship of parents and children. Perhaps you heard the story of the young preacher who just took his first assignment. It was the first time that he was pastoring a church. And he was taken back by the lack of discipline that he observed amongst the youth in the fellowship and, and, and in the neighborhood wherein he was pastoring. And so this young preacher took it upon himself to write a book. And the name of his book was Ten Commandments for Parents. And it was okay, but in the process of time, this preacher had his first child. And after a couple of months of raising his first child, he thought, you know, maybe I should write a second book. And the title of the second book was Five Suggestions for Raising Families, you know. And a little bit more time went by, and he had a couple of more kids, and he thought, you know, maybe I should write another book. And the title of his third book was a few thoughts and meditations for moms and dads. And then several years later, when his last child left the crib, and it was just him and his wife, he thought, you know, I've got to write one more and just cap off the series. And the title of his fourth book was, Who Knows Anything About Parenting Anyways? You know. Oftentimes, we observe as we come to the church on a Sunday morning and we watch a baby dedication, we'll hear Bobby stand up and he'll grab the child and almost, almost every time he'll say, you know, as parents, we, we expect that once we have this child that the manual is going to come with it. Or a few days later, we're going to receive something in the mail that gives us, you know, clear and direct instructions on how we're to take care of this life, how we're to raise this child. And it's true that perhaps one of the most challenging things in all of life is raising children. And they don't come with a manual. However, the Bible does give to us clear instruction and things that we can do as parents to help ensure the success and well-being of our children with the Lord. Now, Paul told us back in chapter 5, verse 21, that the key to success 
in any relationship on this planet is in this thing of mutual submission. And we talked last week about that word submission, how in the world it carries the connotation of authority and, you know, bringing people into subjection and rulership. But in the Bible, submission doesn't carry that definition at all. Biblically speaking, submission is simply assuming upon ourselves the God-given role that He has ordained that we take in a given relationship, whether it be in our marriage or whether it be with our children. And so the key to success is mutual submission or simply taking upon ourselves the role that God has given. It's the key to success and blessing in relationships. He begins in verse 1 talking to children. Interesting, isn't it, that he would start there. Speaking directly to the kids. If you look with me at chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The word children there in the Greek language is the word technon. And what it means is those that are living at home under their parents' care. It's not talking so much about grown children, although you can apply it that way, but he's specifically speaking to those that are living at home with their parents, and he tells them that the directive of the Lord, the will of God for them, their place of submission in the home, is that they are to be obedient to or in subjection to their parents. To obey means to submit and to align yourselves under the rules and the guidelines of your parents. And then he adds, in the Lord. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. And what he's saying to children, what he's saying to those that are under the you know, direction and care of their parents, he is saying that the greatest act of worship that a child can bring to the Lord is to be obedient to their parents. The way that a child can bring glory to God is by being in submission to their parents. And then he finishes the verse by telling us the reason why. And he says, for this is right. Now, amazingly, this is one of the only times in the Bible that God essentially says, Because I said so. We've all had parents that that was the answer that they gave to us growing up. Because I said so. We would say, well, why do I have to do this? Why? Why? And our parents would say, because I said so. And and why? You know, that would frustrate us to no end because it didn't make sense to us that that was their reasoning. And, And I always loved that about God is that he so rarely says that. He almost always gives the reason why, tells us why. But here, in this area of children submitting to their parents, he simply says, because I said so. Because it's right. And I ask myself, why? Lord, why would you choose that as your reason? And I believe it's very logical. Because from what I remember, being a child, you know, being in that age between 8 and 12, you know, when when you're just kind of realizing that you have a will, you know. I mean, you have a will when you're two and three, but you realize it once you're eight, you know, and you get into that thing. I remember what that's like, and I observe it now, both in my own kids and also in yours, you know. Is this, is that a child is so smart, they know so much, 
that they wouldn't believe God if he told them anything else. If his reason was anything other than because I said so, they would say, well, come on, you know. And they would challenge what God is saying. And so God simply just says, hey, listen, I know it doesn't make any sense to you because you're way smarter than your parents. But please, for my sake, just obey them. I picked up these quotes, you know, things that I heard years ago and I was able to find them, you know, but this was a a letter that was written to, I believe, Ann Landers, you know, an editorial. And it's a list of quotes that a person gives, a, a, you know, a, a, a child gives concerning their father at different ages of their life. And it says that when I was four years old, the quote was, my dad, my dad can do everything. At five years old, my daddy knows a whole lot. At six years old, my dad is smarter than your dad. At eight years old, well, my dad doesn't know exactly everything. At ten years old, In the golden days, when my dad grew up, things were sure different. At 12 years old, oh, well, naturally dad doesn't know anything about that. He's too old to remember his childhood. 14 years old, don't pay any attention to my dad. He's too old-fashioned. 21 years old, him? My goodness, he's hopelessly out of date. 25 years old. Dad knows a little bit about it, but then he should because he has a lot of experience. 35 years old. I'm not doing a single thing until I talk to Dad. (laughs) 40 years old. I wonder how Dad would have handled it. He was so wise and had a world of experience. And 50 years old. I'd give anything if Dad were here now so I could talk this over with him. Too bad I didn't appreciate how smart he was. I could have learned a lot from him. You know, and that's the quotes of a child towards their father through the years. Mark Twain said it this way. He said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. (laughs) Personally, it never occurred to me until I had my own children that parenting was only one of the things that my parents were doing when they were raising me. I gave no thought when I was that age that they were trying to pay a mortgage or trying to hold down a job or keep a career in full swing or trying to provide medical insurance or trying to keep the car going down the road or trying to keep the heat on, or keep food in the refrigerator, and all of that aside from the things that were important to them, you know, the goals that they had in life. And now that I have my own kids, and I realize, you know, I look and I say, parenting is probably one of the most difficult things to do in all of life, is to raise children, to successfully raise children. Yet, you don't realize it when you're that age. And so God looks at children knowing that they don't have a clue of what it means, or what goes into it, or what's involved, or the multifaceted dimensions of it all. And he says, listen, if you just obey, obey your parents and the Lord, it will make life easy. 
But then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. In verse 2, he tells us that this is how you're to obey. It isn't just the act of doing or submitting to what they tell you, but there's a method to it. And in verse 2, he reaches way back into the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, the fifth commandment. And he says, honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And in that is the backing for what he is saying, but it is also the method. Because when you obey, children, it isn't that you're to do it reluctantly or to just do it begrudgingly, but you're to obey with honor. If you go up the stairs as loud as you can and practically slam the door off your hinges as you go up there to bed at the directive of your parent, then that's not really obedience. Yes, you're going through the motions, but you're not doing it honoring them as unto the Lord. You know, when you, when you slam the refrigerator door shut, or slam the door shut, or you know, slam the car door, or, or throw that temper tantrum or that fit, that's not honoring them, you know, as God would say. But, but God says that we're to honor. And then he tells us the blessing that's attached to this obedience. As he tells us that it's the first commandment that has a promise attached to it. And he tells us what that is in verse 3. He says, that it may be well with thee, and that you may live long on the earth. It may well be, as is often the case, that the things that your parents are asking you to do, or the way that your parents are treating you, or maybe life itself living under their roof is truly unfair. And the way they're dealing with you is honestly unrighteous. And it's unkind and it's unpleasant. It may well be that that's true. But here's what God is telling you. Is that if in His name and out of love and obedience to Him, you will submit yourself to what they are telling you to do, then He will honor that. And His promise to you is that it will go well with you. And that your days will be long upon the earth. Now, when... The Bible says that back in Exodus 20 in the fifth commandment. The language is not phrased in such a way where it says that you're going to have your promised a long life. Because there are people that have been obedient to their parents. I mean, some of the greatest, you know, Christian brought, you know, Christian raised men that became missionaries died young, you know. It, It isn't a promise that you're guaranteed to live a long life. But what it means is that your days will be long or your days will be full. Your days will be blessed. Your life will be blessed. And that's the promise that God is giving to children that obey, that honor their parents. That it's going to go well with you. Listen, it may be unpleasant right now. It may be misery living at home. It might be unrighteous, the rules, the regulations, the strictness with which your parents are raising you up. But God says, listen, seasons are going to change. Times are going to change. This too shall pass. And there's a blessing in store for those that will honor me by obeying their parents. And so God tells the children that they are to obey their parents, that it might go well with them, and that their days might be full. In verse 4, he turns the attention now to the fathers. Men, strap in, put your seatbelts on, grab your pen, your paper, you know. Moms, you're off the hook. You get to just laugh. Because Paul says nothing to moms. He's talking about parents, but yet he has absolutely nothing to say to mothers at all. Do you know why? Because he doesn't have to. Moms are moms, right? 
You can't separate the mother from the mom. Once she has a baby, she becomes a mom, you know. And, and, and there's something that's so intuitively ingrained in women that they don't need Paul to explain to them what their role is. Paul needs them to explain to him because us men, we're clueless, you know. And so he talks to the fathers. And what does he say? Well, in verse 4, if you read with me, it says, And you, fathers... Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Basically, what Paul is saying to the dads is, don't be the cause of frustration, consternation, and wrath within their lives, but rather bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And the idea is that the cause of frustration and confusion and ultimately an angry disposition within the heart and life of a child is the neglect of the fathers to bring the children up in the training and in the admonition of the Lord. That the neglect of the fathers to fulfill their God-given role with their children is the source of frustration, confusion, and wrath within their lives. So what is a father to do, according to the Bible, to keep this from happening? Four things for your consideration. If you're taking note, you can write these things down. The first one is, dads, assume the responsibility. Take the directive. Receive the call that God has placed upon your lives to be the father of your children. Understand, Dad, that God has called you into a primary role in the bringing up of your children. Too often, the dads say, well, that's, that's the woman's job. They're the nurturers. They're the comforters. They're the nurses. They're the ones that take care of the raising. And then, you know, they hand them to us when they're about 20 years old. And, you know, we take it from there. And you know, we become kind of their friends or their buddies or their, you know, counselors for financial matters or something of, of that nature. But no, no, no. Paul is saying that, listen, it is the father's responsibility to bring the children up. And there's a God-given role that been given to the dad and that as dads we are required and called to take that job to take the responsibility now the statistics are clear and consistent we have a number of CEOs many people in this church that are associated with the prisons we have the statistics being thrown at us constantly through news stories and through you know editorials and things that come our way and here's the Here's the verdict, is that most of the people that end up in prisons or end up in psychiatric wards or end up in clinics for various reasons, the common denominator in all of them is that they grew up in a home without a dad. They didn't have a dad. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is not so that you can say, well, I'm at home, I live with my wife, our children are under us, so therefore I'm doing okay, you know. And you can, that's not why I'm saying that. Here's why I'm saying it. It's because many of the dads that even are living at home, that are there with their children, they're there, but they're not really there. They're in the home, they're playing a role, but they're not actively taking their children and bringing them up in the ways of the Lord. And here's the danger is that you have the potential of ending up with the same problem as someone where the dad isn't even present at all. 
Because the job isn't just for you to simply hang in there and keep making sure that there's money in the bank every week and that the bills are being paid and that the heat, that's important and that's good, please. But what Paul is saying is that dads, you need to bring your children up. You need to assume that you assume the responsibility and understand that you have a primary task, a primary role in the nurture and in the raising of these children. So take the responsibility. The second thing that Paul tells us, dads, that we're to do, and again for your notes, is that we are to bring them up. He says that there again in verse 4. He says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but he says, but bring them up. And it could very well read just simply, bring them along. Just bring them along. And in the context of the verse, it is all in the Lord. So it could read like this. Bring them along or bring them up in the Lord. Bring them along in the Lord. That's what Paul is saying to us dads. That's number two is bring them along in the Lord. And here's the implication. Is that they, your children, are going to go the direction and to the depth that you go, dad. Your children are going to go the direction and to the depth that you yourself go. And therefore, if you want your children to grow in the Lord, if you want them to grow in maturity, if you want them to grow in wisdom, then that means that you, Dad, you must also be growing in those same things. Because we're not called to send them or catapult them, we're called to bring them. And we cannot bring them somewhere that we're not going ourselves. And so if we're going to be successful in bringing our children up in the Lord, then it means that we must also be growing in the Lord. The authority behind what we say as parents is always in what we do. And if we want our children to grow in the Lord, but we're not growing in the Lord, they're not going to grow in the Lord. If we want our children to pray, but yet we don't pray, our children are not going to pray. They're not going to grow in their prayer life or in their dependence upon God. If we want our children to read the word and study the scriptures and be established in spiritual things, righteous principles, but yet we ourselves are not going there, growing there ourselves, then we can't expect that our children are going to come along. Because they're not going to go anywhere where we don't bring them. That's just the way that it's designed. But then, after that, not only are we to be growing ourselves, going closer to the Lord, being taught, being instructed, being deepened, but then we're to take them with us. That is this, is that we're to take the things that we're learning as God is teaching us. Take the things that God is doing within our lives, teaching us and showing us, and then share it with them. Give to them the same things that God is giving to us. And here's a secret. I'm going to tell you a secret, dads. Is that if you are resolved in your heart and in your mind, that you are going to share with your kids the things that God is sharing with you and teach your kids the things that God is teaching you, it will greatly increase the things that God shares with you and the things that God teaches you. In Genesis chapter 18, we have the account of the Lord visiting Abraham just prior to his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And the Lord visits Abraham there with two angels and Abraham cooks them a meal and they talk together and they fellowship. And just as the Lord is about to leave Abram with those two angels, there's this encounter. Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. It says that the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And listen to verse 19. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And here's God, and you can hear him thinking out loud as he talks to these angels, and he says, shall we not tell Abraham the thing that we're doing? Seeing that, he also will tell his children and those in his household. And part of what made God decide to let Abraham in on what he was doing was the fact that Abraham was going to share it with his children and with his family. Can I tell you, that some of the greatest insights, revelations, and illustrations that I have received personally, I have received lying on the carpeted floor of my children's bedroom. I, I never prepare for the Bible studies that I give them. Never. I go in their room, I tuck them in, I turn off the lights, and then I lay down on the floor in their room, and I just begin to talk. I've been through the Bible with my oldest, Hosanna, probably somewhere between seven and ten times. You know, not obviously not line upon line, verse by verse. But going through and telling them the stories and then applying them to their lives and then extracting from them, you know, the answers and the counsels of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord. And that's my favorite teaching time. Because as I lay there and just talk to them, you know, and, and you're getting into the heart and the mind of an eight-year-old or a six-year-old. The simple illustrations that God gives you to be able to relate deep spiritual truths on their level in a way that they can understand. And the things that he's knitting together in my mind that I wouldn't even be able to talk to them. It's insane. Listen, dads, bring your kids along. Be growing in the things of God and share the things that he's doing, the things that you're learning with your kids. Because it will greatly increase the things that God gives to you. Bring them up. But listen, if you're not going, if you're not growing, then don't expect that they will. Because we can't lead them anywhere that we're not going ourselves. The third thing that we're to do as parents, is that we're as, as parents, as fathers specifically, is that we are to teach our children. And again, the context of the verse is all of the Lord, in the Lord. So if we're teaching them, what are we teaching them? Are we teaching them the secrets of politics? The wisdom of government? No, we're teaching them the things of God, the doctrines of God, specifically the Word of God. We're to teach our children the Word of God. Someone's going to say, well, children can't understand the Bible. I can barely understand the Bible. And, and you're saying that children can understand the Bible? How can a child understand the Bible? The Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, one that he himself had discipled and sent out into ministry. 
Listen to the words of Paul as he encourages young Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, verse... Oh goodness. Yeah, chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. He says this. He says, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And then verse 15. And that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul looked at Timothy and he said, Timothy, from the time that you were a child, you have known the holy scriptures that are able to make you wise. Well, how do you teach a child the things of the Lord? How do you do that? Is, it, is that the secret? Is it on the floor of their bedroom late at night, right before they go to sleep? Yes. Is that the only time? No. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, gives us the answer. This is how you teach a child the things of God, the Word of God. It says, now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that it may increase or that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Now listen. If you're going to teach your kids, the first thing is that, first of all, you better know the Lord yourself. You better know the Lord your God, that he is one Lord. And you better love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then, as it says in verse 6, all these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. The word of God has to be in your heart. Again, you can't give away something that you don't have. You can't give away a cold unless you have a cold, right? You can't give away the word unless you have the word. And so he says, hide these things in your heart. And then, once the word of God is real, once it's alive in your heart and in your life, he says in verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently unto thy children and shall talk of them when you sit in thine house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon thy hand, that is, the things that you put your hand to, let the word of God govern and guide. And they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, the things that you look upon, the affections that you have, it ought to be governed and directed, guided and led by the word of God. And he says in verse 9, And you shall write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. That is, the direction and the establishment or the foundation of your house ought to be upon the word of God. And when the word of God is the foundation whereupon your house is built, 
And when it's the affection of your life, wherein it governs the way that you look, the things that you're focused on, and when it's the direction of your hands, what you're putting your hand to, to serve the Lord with your strength, and then you speak it into their lives while they're rising up, while they're laying down, while you're sitting at the table, while you're driving to Home Depot, while you're bringing them home from school, while you're walking with them in the woods, talking to them about the Lord, making the Word of God a priority in your conversation. They will know the Holy Scriptures that are able to make them wise unto salvation. Fathers, that's our job. It's what we've been commissioned to do by God himself in the bringing our children up, in the nurturing, in the admonition of the Lord. Jesus said that the heart of a human being is like soil and that the word of God is like good seed. And the good seed of the word must be sown upon the soil of the soul, the soil of the heart. And that if that seed is carefully cultivated and the weeds are kept down and the thorns aren't able to choke it out, then it will produce a crop that will bear fruit and bring blessing to their lives. Now here's what I've discovered. Is that good seed in good soil still requires a lot of work. Right? I mean, this is planting season now, and we're starting to get the gardens tilled and put seeds in the ground. And what do we know? It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Weeds, garbage, it takes nothing. All you have to do to get weeds is leave it alone, leave it to itself. And you'll get weeds, as many weeds as you want. But if you want good fruit, good seed to bring forth, then it takes something. You see, there needs to be constant feeding, constant infusion, constant tending. And the same thing is true in the heart of a human and in the heart of a child. Trash will grow in the heart of your child all by itself. You don't have to do anything. In fact, if you want trash to come out of a child's life, just do nothing. Just leave them alone. It will grow all by itself. But if you want good fruit and blessing to come out of their life, then that takes a constant infusion and a constant feeding within their lives. And it isn't enough just to bring them to Sunday school or take them to church or make sure that they do an occasional Bible lesson. I I told you already that my kids, they've been through, and I'm not saying that to boast, please. You know, there's probably Christian kids in this church that haven't done that, that are better than mine. You know, that's not the point. But here's what I've learned teaching my kids the Bible, is that they forget real easy. Even though we've gone through some of these things so many times, I'll ask them the question just to see if they remember, and I'm amazed at how much they forget. And to think that, well, they heard that once, and so therefore that seed is there, and I'm expecting that a crop is going to grow. Listen, that's foolish. It doesn't work that way. The word must continually be being implanted. That's why it says, while you're walking with them in the way, when they rise up and when they lay down, when you're eating at your table, sitting at your house, give them the word of God because it requires that constant infusion of truth to bring forth the good fruit within their lives. And here's the point. If you're relying upon the Sunday school or the Pioneer Club or upon the occasional lesson that your child gets, they're not getting enough. That would be the same thing as feeding them a regular meal once or twice a week. What would you expect from the health of a child if that's all you gave them in terms of you know, physical nutrition and nourishment. They would be sickly. They would be weak. 
Many children are weak and sickly because parents are leaving the job to the church. Listen, Sunday school, Pioneer Club, children's programs, youth group, it's a great vitamin. It's an excellent supplement. But it cannot be the primary source of feeding in the life of a child if you expect and desire them to do well. And so Paul tells us, parents, fathers specifically, that we are to teach our children the word of God. And then number four is that we must be diligent to discipline. Notice with me again there in Ephesians verse 4. It says, Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word nurture that you see there, if you're not reading a King James, then it's up on the screen. That word nurture, every other time that that Greek word is used in the New Testament, the translation is chastening. Every other time that word is used, it is translated as the English word chastening. And the word, the definition of the word is the whole training and education of children, which relates to mind and morals and employs for this purpose commands and admonitions, reproof and punishment. It pertains also to the training and care for the body. Now, the passage of Scripture that unfolds for us the meaning of this word or the definition of this concept is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And listen to what the Hebrew writer says concerning this concept of chastening, or as it says, nurturing there in Ephesians. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, then God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they, verily, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, this chastening that he speaks of. In this passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. The contextual meaning of the word and what it means is disciplinary correction. And what we're talking about here is the board of education being applied to the seat of understanding. Do you understand? That's what the Bible is talking about. Now, I realize that it's a sensitive subject. It's a controversial topic. But concerning folly in the life of a child or rebellion in someone who is under your care, it is the only biblical counsel that is given to parents in terms of dealing with it. 
Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. It says that he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, or chastens him oftentimes. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. It says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Again, Proverbs chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. We're told, withhold not correction from the child, for if you beat him with the rod. Now, listen, that's King's English, okay? That's not, he's not saying abuse him. It, it means administer the rod. That's what it's saying. That if you beat him with the rod, he shall not die. You shall beat him with the rod and shall deliver his soul from hell. Powerful, isn't it? And then again, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15. The the last one here, it says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Now listen. It's very clear. The Bible is consistent as it talks about this concept. But understand that the reason why it's controversial is because if it's not done correctly, if it's not done the way the Bible teaches or with the heart that the father has as he corrects his children, then it can be abuse. And so therefore it's controversial and rightly so. But how do you correct a child correctly? What's the biblical method or means of doing this in a way that is right or in a way that will be productive? And a couple of things for you just to consider as we come to a close in our Bible study. Is that first of all, and and please write these things down, or at least remember them, think them through. First and foremost, number one is that disciplinary correction in the Bible is directly linked with love. Disciplinary correction is always linked with love. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And what that means is that from the Father's perspective, the motivation behind disciplinary correction always must be love. It can never be, it must never be out of frustration. It must never be motivated by anger or by a reaction to something that a child has done. But it must always be motivated by love and nothing but love. And listen, fathers, mothers alike, if you don't love your children, if you're not completely committed and driven by love and seeing them do well, then don't administer disciplinary correction to your children. Just don't do it. Just, you can shut me off now. You know, you can come back in as we close the study or whatever, and none of the rest of this applies to you. It must be motivated by love. It's always motivated by love. Number two is that the lines that are drawn for your children must be clear and careful. If you recall back in verse 4 of Ephesians, in fact, you could just look there, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It says, and you fathers... Provoke not your children unto wrath. You notice that word provoke. That they can be provoked unto wrath. There's two things that can provoke a child to wrath in this area. And number one is when a child is chastised or disciplined or corrected out of ignorance or due to ignorance. 
It's always to be done with a reason and not through reaction. Listen, every single one of us that is in here tonight knows the proper way to use a box of markers, or in some cases with some of us homeschool families, a drawer full of markers. You know, do anybody else have a drawer of markers or crayons? You know, it's, just, it's not in a box anymore. It's just most of them don't even work. Listen, we understand. If I was going to use the markers, I would carefully select the color that I was looking for, use it, cap it, return it, and then find the next color. Not so with a child. See, 10-month-old Riley, my little 10-month-old Riley, he doesn't know the rules. And so he comes to the drawer and he says, now this is nice. I can pull myself up on this. I can hold myself here and look at all these candies. And he goes through and he starts throwing markers and, you know, they're everywhere. They're all over the whole room and markers and get them all out the whole thing. And here I am, I come home, I'm tired, I've had a long day, there's all kinds of things going on, the washing machine has just exploded and everything. I walk in the room, and I see 10,000 markers all over the room, many of them capless, you know, colors seeping into the fibers of the carpet. And my reaction is, who is responsible for this, you know? And I've got my holster there with my spoons and, you know, they're coming out. And I'm like putting parental camouflage on like someone's getting the rod, you know. (laughs) See, that's giving the rod out of reaction, not out of reason. Because little Riley doesn't know the rules about the marker. And so for me to react and to administer discipline is to provoke him unto wrath. See, I and and you alike, we all understand the purpose, the proper purpose of a closet organizer. It's to properly put our clothes in place and to hang our things and put our shoes. We understand that. But to my five-year-old son, Rocky, at the time, to him it looks a lot like the climbing cubbies at Kids Kingdom. And so I come in and I see that the entire closet organizer is no longer in the closet. It's on the floor under a crying child, you know. And again, I walk in and I go, what's the matter with you, you know. And I I make my wife laugh because I walk in and I see it and I say, this doesn't even make sense, you know. And she laughs. I hear go, because of course it doesn't make sense. It makes perfect sense to Rocky. Thanks, Dad, you put in a playground in my room. This is awesome, you know. But for me to correct him for something would be to do it out of reaction and not out of reason. And it would be to provoke the child unto wrath. And see, chastisement without crime equals wrath. And so the lines must be clearly drawn. The other way that I can... uh, you know, frustrate or bring my child to wrath is when the lines are too fine or too numerous. I have seen some households where the rules make the United States Constitution look like a simple memo. Oh, you left the tooth, you left the cap off the toothpaste again. Get in the room. Oh, you forgot to put the seat up before you went potty. Get in the room. You left the seat up after you went potty. Get in the room, you know. Tuck your shirt in. Eat over the plate. I told you to use your napkin. Wipe your mouth. Get the milk off. Every little thing. 
And all of a sudden, I start to see frustration fill the heart and the mind of this child because no matter what they do, they cannot please dad or mom. And the one thing that a child wants to do more than anything else in the world is to please their parents. And sometimes the standard is set so high in some of our homes, in some of our minds, with some of our kids, that we bring them to frustration, we burden them with the fineness of our lines or the multiplicity of them. I read an article a number of years ago that changed my life as it relates to my relationship with my kids. And I think I shared it with you, you know, back at the time that I read it. But it was an article called Father Forgives, and it was published in Reader's Digest back in the 1950s. And, you know, the article was a letter that was written from this man who was such a man. His standards were unreachable. And he was constantly barking into the life of his son to try to bring him up to the standard that he expected of him as a child of a professional. And he said one day he had just been laying into his son time after time after time. Just every little thing he did was there was some word of criticism, something to criticize about it. And he said that night, right before his child went to bed, he was sitting in his den, reclining in his chair. And he said his little son came in the room and just threw himself on his dad and put his arms around his neck. And he said he looked at him and he, said, why are you still up, you know, or whatever. Gave him a kiss and sent him off to bed. He said an hour later, he went into his room. And he saw him laying there, and it says he looked in his little face as he was just sleeping there peacefully like an angel. And he just stared into the face of his son. And he said he began to weep. As he began to realize what he was doing to his young son by constantly criticizing, constantly trying to bring. and, And so he repented, and he wrote this letter to his son asking for his son's forgiveness for all that he did. And then he closed the article this way, and this is the line that got me. He said, son, I am guilty of measuring you by the yardstick of my years. In other words, listen, we spend our whole lives learning things. It takes us years. Don't you remember what it was like when you were a kid? You didn't care if you ate over the plate. You didn't care if you used the napkin or capped the toothpaste or wiped the sink when you were done. Some of you still don't. You know, (laughs) I don't either. (laughs) You know, but, but here's the point is that it takes a long time to season a life and to bring forth civility and normalcy. And sometimes we measure our kids by the yardstick of our years. And it brings them to a point of frustration. And so the lines must be crystal clear, but yet simple and understandable. The lines must be drawn. It's part of correcting a child correctly. It's interesting, if you read the Old Testament, there are 614 rules, regulations, and laws that were laid out. 614. But yet God looked at his children and he said, okay, let's make this real simple. Ten. Ten things. And God drew clear and distinct lines. A holy God that no one could approach unto, and yet he kept it very simple for his kids. And it's part of what we're to do, dads, in the drawing of the lines. So how do we do it? How do we draw the lines for our kids? Because it's important that they have lines. Here's the way. Mom and dad, you sit down together. Even if you're separated or divorced. And this is critical. If you cannot do this with your spouse, then again, you can just close up your notes. You cannot do this unless of course you know your spouse is completely gone and off the scene but you sit down with your spouse and you say okay what do we expect of our children 
What are the lines that we're going to draw for them? Okay, obedience. Obedience is absolutely critical. It's right there in the first verse. What Paul says is important for children to do is that, our, that we obey, you know. And then whatever else it might be in your house with your children in your situation, you draw those lines simply and clear together, just you and your spouse, no children involved. The lines are drawn. Now you go on to the next thing. The next thing is that you sit now with your children and you explain to them the process. You say, listen, these are the rules. These are the lines. You must obey. You cannot lie to us. Honesty is imperative in the household. You cannot steal. You know, you cannot punch your brother or your sister and let there be any physical altercation. And you lay out the clear and distinct, simple lines for your children. Together, you and your wife, and you say, now listen, these are, or this is the penalty. That if you cross this line, it isn't punishment, it's correction. If you cross the line, there is a reaction. You are going to feel something as a result of crossing this line. Just like if you stick your finger in an electric socket, the action has a reaction, right? And if you cross this line, then there's going to be this reaction that you're going to feel and you sit down and you explain that to your children there's been no offense you're just having a discussion with them and and you you lay out for them how the household is going to run according to what god has said now when there's a breach when the child crosses one of those lines here's what happens you've already drawn the lines understood what you're doing, and you've already explained the process and the penalty to your children. And so now, once it happens, there's absolutely no need for anger whatsoever. Because you're just dealing with facts. You know, they broke the rule, so it's, okay, get upstairs. And you could say it with a smile on your face, not a sinister smile. You know, I'm saying that, that, that there doesn't have to be emotion because this has already been laid out. And so there you go. And then you come upstairs or wherever it it might be and you sit down with the child. No anger. You just lay out the facts. You say, this is what you did. And this is what you chose by doing it. You knew that this is what would happen if you cross this line. And so this is what's going to happen. And it's happening because of what you chose to do. And you're just explaining. You're not explaining through your teeth. You can't explain through your teeth, you see. And I would say this, if you're angry, if you're frustrated, don't do it. Just leave it or hand, you know, punt, take off your, you know, rod holster, give it to your wife and say, honey, could you just handle this one? I'm I'm emotionally entwined with this one, you know, or wait or whatever the case might be. Because they're never, see, God doesn't correct us because he's angry. God's correction in our lives is because he loves us and he wants to see us do well. He doesn't do it out of anger or out of punishment. The punishment for our sins was laid upon Christ. The correction and the chastisement is so that he can raise us in the right way and see us do well. And so you explain to your kids the thing, what it is, and then you administer the penalty. You know, the board of education upon the seat of understanding. You apply you know, the, the chastisement or the correction that, that is prescribed. Now, it's careful and it's controlled. It's not abuse. You're not leaving marks. You're not trying to wound them. You want to give them a carefully controlled thing. And we need wisdom as parents in this. Every child is different. Every situation is different. There are some children. I have two types of children in my, amongst my four. As I have one that once they get the look... 
the eyes in slow motion have moved from wherever it was to them. As, you know, the realization of conviction is entering the room. I have some children that as soon as that happens, repentance is right there already. The tears fill the eyes. Very simple process. You know, you go, you explain, you love. Sometimes you don't even need to administer, you know. I have other children that it's like, <laughs> you know, they harden like a flint. You know, they're like, ooh, then we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way, you know, kind of a thing. But you need wisdom. You see, you have to have wisdom. I remember, and just an example of what I mean by that, there was one instance when Rocky was just kind of at that age, you know, that, that, that real, like, I'm going to test you kind of age, and all kids have it. And there was one particular day that Georgia just could not get through to Rocky. No matter what she said, he would just go specifically and do the opposite. And it was, like, surprising. She called me three times that day. She almost never does that. And I got Rocky on the phone, and I'm like, now, Rocky, listen to your mother. Listen. He, he just wouldn't listen. And so I got home, and I take Rocky in his room, and he's got this stone-cold look on his face. And he's like the most meek and gentle kid now, you know. <laughs> and, and he just looked at me, you know. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why, why don't you obey your mom? And he just looked at me like, I don't care what you say. It was like, what is going on, you know. And so we went through the process again, and still there was no reaction, no change. And I'm like, Lord, what do I do now? And the Lord gave me wisdom. And I took Rocky, and I set him in his windowsill. We, at the time, had a house where the windowsills were about 18 inches deep. And I set him in the windowsill, and I said, look out the window. And I went outside, and I grabbed his brand-new Tonka remote-control backhoe front-end loader that was completely operational by remote. And I brought it outside of the window and put it on the ground right in front of his room. And I, I pointed to him, I looked at him, and then I reached from behind my back and I grabbed a baseball bat. And it went... And I smashed it into a thousand pieces with him looking at the thing. And then I went back, I left it there, and I went back in the house, and I came back around, I came into his room, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and his little lip quivered, and he broke. It worked. <laughs> and, and I say that to say that, that we need wisdom from God, because that every child is different, every situation is different, you know, and, and that's not the way I deal with Rocky. I still deal with him the same way I'm explaining to you, but on that day, it took a little extra, you know. And the little extra is not to be extra force. We need wisdom from God. Do you understand? And God will give us wisdom. He says if we ask for wisdom, he'll give it to us. So once you've administered the penalty now, here's what happens. You take the child and you hold them. You hold them. If it's in you, weep with them. Look in their face. Hold them. Let them sense and feel your love. Then once they, you know, calm down, and usually the tears are not pain tears, they're humble tears, you know. You take the child and you just talk to them. Explain. This is what happened. Do you understand? Maybe it's not so important that you obey me when it comes to how many cookies you eat, but what happens when a ball rolls into the road and daddy says, stop! And you don't obey then, and you get run over by a car. See, it's important for God's sake, for God's word's sake, for his kingdom's sake, and for your survival's sake, it's important that you obey. You can't throw a tantrum like that on the floor of Hannaford because you can't have a bag of balloons. 
Because although today it's me wrestling with you on the floor of Hannaford over a bag of balloons, but if you don't learn this lesson, then someday it's going to be you wrestling with a group of police officers in the streets over a bag of something illegal. And you take the time, explain to your children why, the whys, the whats, the things of God, because you want them to do well. After that, you pray with them. Oh my goodness, I just looked at the clock. I'm sorry, i got to wrap this up. Then you talk to them, and then number 10, you enjoy them. You enjoy them, because something happens once a child goes through correction the correct way. They're like a different child on the other side. There's a light in their eye. There's a lamp in their step. There's just this peace in your home. Their whole demeanor just shifts and changes. It's almost like they feel clean, and, and I think they do. You, know, you talk to some people, and you, they, they commit crimes, and they commit them for the very sake of being caught. And you realize that there's something going on. There's a guilt in them that was never dealt with, and they needed to be free from it. And that's what happens in a child. Now, listen, it's not punishment, it's not abuse. It's correction with a sting. That's what it is. I heard one time about a boy that was born with no nerve endings. True story. He had no nerve endings, and he absolutely had no ability to feel pain whatsoever. He could not feel pain. And when I first heard that, I thought, wow, that would be awesome. Think about that. What could you do if you could never feel pain? You're like, Batman, you know, hit me with the stick, you know, whatever. But listen, by the time that boy was 10 years old, he had no fingers, he had no toes. His lips were all disfigured and curled. His ears, his nose was gone. His tongue had been gnawed right through by his own teeth, and his body was completely covered with scars. The reason for it is because he didn't have the ability to feel pain, and so therefore he didn't know when he was being injured. The point is this, is that God has ordained pain in the life of a human being to teach us boundaries. Pain is the medium whereby we learn the things that God needs us to learn. You know, the other day I was reaching for something in my car. You know, you open the car door and you reach in the car. And I've learned from pain to put my back leg up. Because the door does not stay open, you know, when I'm parked there. And it, boom, you know, it hits the back of your leg. You're like, ah, you know, you want to die. So, so what happens is that I've learned, I don't even have to think about it. I learn, I open the car door, I reach in, I put my leg up. <laughs> See, I've learned the boundaries. Why? Because of pain. And that's what it does. When a child feels that sting, it causes them to learn. And it becomes instinctive. It becomes a part of their life to be obedient to deal orderly. They're going to learn order somewhere. And it's a lot easier for them to learn it at home with you than it is for them to learn it later, be it through the prison system or be it through losing 10 jobs or be it through however it is that they're going to learn it. The bottom line is that pain is an effective teacher. And I can tell you that if you love the Lord and if you're committed to your children and if you're not given to an impulsive temper, it works. It truly does work. God knows what he's talking about. Well, we have to close. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word tonight. And uh, we just ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom. That as the spiritual leaders of our home, that we would be spiritual men, men of God. And that you would help us, Lord. 
to assume the responsibility that you've given to us, to take the role that you've assigned to us as men, that we would be the spiritual leaders in our home. And that, Lord, we would be diligent to teach our children and to bring them up in your ways. And that we would be continually challenging ourselves and growing deeper in you that we might have something to give to them. And we ask that you would help us and give us wisdom in this area. That, Lord, our children would not go the way of the world. That they wouldn't be consumed in the vortex of a godless society. But that you would help us to train them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And that they would do well. We pray that you would give us wisdom. We commit our households to you. We commit our children to you. At each of their various ages and their stages of life, Lord. We pray that you would help us to apply these things, especially in places, Lord, where maybe they never have been in place. And the results of that are beginning to show themselves. I pray that you'd teach us, Lord, how to strengthen the foundation. So please, Lord Jesus, give us wisdom. Give us strength. Let us know your love, your perfect love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.